You are listening to As a Woman, episode 128, Doctors and Friends with Dr. Kimmery Martin. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. Today, I am so excited to have my friend, Dr. Kimmery Martin, back on the podcast to talk about her latest book, Doctors and Friends. She is an emergency medicine trained physician, and she is also a physician writer. She is a lifelong literary nerd. She promotes reading, interviews authors. She teaches seminars, speaks at conferences, medical schools, bookstores, and she truly is one of a kind when it comes to supporting others, especially those who want to be writers in their career. And what she has to say about her new book, which is amazing, but also following that passion, even in light of rejection, is just so inspiring. She completed her medical training at the University of Louisville, and she went to Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. She was raised in the mountains outside of Berea, Kentucky, and she now lives with her husband and three children in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hi, Kimmery. Thank you so much for coming back on the As Woman podcast and joining us again. Hi, Natalie. My pleasure. So you are one of the very, very few people I've had as a repeat guest, and that is because one, I adore you. Two, I'm just fascinated by your life. And three, this book, oh my gosh, I mean, I love to read, but this book really it was an interesting read with where we are in the world. And I know it has a bigger background story because we even talked about it the last time we recorded. So I want to spend some time diving into it. But I thought first, in case people miss the first episodes and they have to scroll back in all of those different episodes that we have, maybe you could tell people how you got to this spot, considering that you're a physician writer now, but that was not, you know, initially you just started out as a physician and you made a career change. So do you want to highlight that journey for people who are new to you? Yeah. Um, so I've always been a voracious reader and about, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, decided to try my hand at doing this thing that has brought me so much joy throughout my life when other people do it. And that's writing. And Natalie, right away, I realized I had a huge passion for it because it was taking over my life. I was <laughs> forgetting to do everything else. <laughs> and it was kind of a gradual transition. People ask me all the time about, you know, should they pursue this passion project of theirs? Should they make a big shift in their life? And I think Yes, you should pursue things that bring you genuine joy, but, but don't expect it to happen immediately and don't feel stressed if you aren't achieving all your goals at once. Because this is a, this for me was a long, slow process. I'm transitioning from becoming an emergency medicine doctor to pretty much a full time novelist. I can only imagine how hard it was to juggle at the very beginning, you know, because the life of an ER doctor, I think most people know, is shift work and the schedule can be crazy. And I know at one point you were able to transition to a little bit more stable job, but I presume at the very beginning of this journey, that was hard to balance, you know, these different shifts, your other responsibilities, your desire to write. How did you sort out that it was time to dedicate more time to writing over just traditional medicine? Well, gradually, and some of it was serendipitous, but 
I think it's like anything else. You start doing something and it seems consuming to you. It seems interesting to you, engaging. And so I started giving up other things just to carve out time because who has time? Yeah. <laughs> right. Most valuable I'm, commodity, right? We're all so busy. And in order to do anything well, it usually takes a lot of time. So I began, well, I stopped watching television for a period of about three <laughs> years, basically. So I've that's the key. Again. You got to cut out TV, <laughs> friends. If you want to chase your dreams, TV's got to go. <laughs> I mean, you got to cut out something. You got to be more efficient with your time. And I did. I carved out time. I switched to part-time at my job. And part of that, again, was just a, a lucky job offer somewhere else. But but I think if it's important to you, you'll find ways to make it work and you might have to work at making it work. I totally agree with that. And it can definitely be a struggle. I think it makes sense now. It's easy to look backwards and say, oh yeah, that was obviously the right choice for me. But I'm sure at the moment there was some anxiety and doubt about how this pathway towards writing, or maybe you had no doubt, maybe you were totally confident that you had this in you. I mean, what was that initial internal conversation? All to the no. I was very insecure. <laughs> I mean, of course I did feel like I would keep doing it no matter what, and I might change my definition of success. Yeah. But I mean, I think I could go in a couple different directions with this answer. First of all, I'm going to say, and this is no shock to anyone, the world is really unequal when it comes to creative pursuits, just like it is everywhere else. Yeah. So you don't make a lot of money as a writer, typically, unless you strike gold. And if you're working a um, job that doesn't pay very much, then you don't have a lot of extra wiggle room to make it as a writer. You know, I'm lucky enough to be married to somebody else with an income and that allowed me to carve out some of this time and to get help and to, you know, hire babysitters and all those things. And that's just not something everybody can do. So I think the creative industry, the publishing industry is working really hard to try to remedy that and give more people opportunities because it's hard enough to break into this industry mm -hmm. if you have all the resources and if you don't, and then, yeah, have if you don't, how are you going to do it? How are you going to find all this time it takes? <laughs> yeah. So, oh my gosh, I just went completely off and don't even remember <laughs> what you asked. We were talking about internal <laughs> narrative, like doubt when you first oh, yeah, doubt said, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. So I did very much doubt that I would ever be successful because it was such a humbling process. I had so much failure and I've actually written a lot about failing. We all know that failing is a part of innovating and failing is a part of creativity and failing is a part sucks, of achieving though. anything. But yeah, yeah, it <laughs> sucks. It's so painful. It's so hard. I mean, you just feel beat down. I think I had over a hundred rejections of my initial query letter about my manuscript, which is this whole publishing history thing, but it just, you know, time after time, after time, after time, no one was interested in reading the damn book. And yeah, that, that made it so hard to keep going, but I feel like there's this very stubborn part of me that was not, was, was not, not letting that. it go. <laughs> yeah. So your very first book was Queen of Hearts. And or at least it's the, right. That's the first one that I know of. Was there a book before that one? No, no, that was really my first writing endeavor of any kind other than just book reviews. How long did that book live in you before it came out on paper? Was it a very quick process or was that idea, that storyline festering for a really long time? Uh, I wrote the first draft in nine or 10 months, but I didn't know what I was doing. So it was this process of getting educated about writing and oh, the process. 
that took a long time. I mean, I did a lot of conferences and read a lot of books and crowdsourced a lot of people and made a lot of writer friends and gradually got better and better at what you have to do to be able to coherently string words together into anything someone would want to read. You are so impressive. Okay. I'm just going to fangirl for a minute before we get on to the next thing. So Doctors and Friends, this book I want to hit on because I am going to suspect that most of the audience has not, you know, read your books. Hopefully people have, but let's say people haven't. And you live in this genre, mostly writing with your lead characters as female physicians, which is something you know and you're friends with, which resonates so much with me and obviously a lot of the people who listen. This idea, so I don't want to give the whole book away, but it's pretty obvious that this is a book about circling around a pandemic. And I know that you started this pre-pandemic and where were you where were you in the stage when COVID happened was this book done was this book in the middle like where were you in this concept when real life started to uh, mimic the art that you were putting on paper I usually start all my author talks by apologizing to the world for bringing this plague upon us because I feel like it did. <laughs> oh my God, I love you. Um, you know, uh, February, March, 2020, I was on a book tour for my second book talking about the book that became Doctors and Friends. I was in the first draft of it, kind of close to finishing the first draft, although right around the time it became apparent we were going to have a real life pandemic, my editor said, okay, we have to make a decision about whether or not to go forward with the publication of this book, because publishing, unlike emergency medicine, is a slow process. You know, I'm used to running around like I'm on fire, and, and the publishing yeah. industry it might be two years from the time you turn in a manuscript till the time the book is published. So I did extensively revise the manuscript after COVID, but actually most of the basic bones of the story stayed the same. The depictions of the virus and the medical response and all of that stuff kind of stayed the same. And it was it was a about a year-long process prior to 2020 of research and drafting and again crowdsourcing all these experts. Well, I mean, traveling. how easy would that have you could have just saved yourself a whole year of work if you had just waited? I'm joking, but it seems like the world <laughs> yeah. became like familiar with pandemics and infectious disease experts became, you know, superstars. You knew who they were, and you were probably really crowdsourcing a lot of stuff and looking through history and trying to be accurate with various things that then became oh, yeah. real life news. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit. And there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. 
And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. I crowdsourced some extremely famous people. Um, and actually, there's a chapter in the book called something like We're All Armchair Virologists or Every Armchair Virologist in America, which is everybody now because we all know so much more than we did. It's so true. I find even, you know, side note in my job when I'm talking about checking, you know, antibodies for rubella or varicella or CMV to see if people, you know, are immune. Everybody understands these words so much more than they used to. It, it is kind of nice on one aspect that the general public's been educated more, but everybody is kind of their own virologist making their predictions and assumptions throughout the entire pandemic. This is also, so you write a book about a pandemic before the pandemic starts, editing the book throughout the pandemic, release the book, in the middle of the pandemic and really what a different experience that must have been for you too, right? Book tours, trying to like talk about the book. Has it been helpful that it's about a pandemic? Has it hurt? Do you think it's been net neutral? What do, what do you think? Well, I've been basically living in my own pandemic since 2018 when I oh had this God. idea <laughs> and then the year of research and writing. And I, I want to say the final draft was turned into the publisher in mid, early to mid 2020. So really so much had not oh, happened yet at the yeah. time that that was even turned in. And so as excruciating as it has been for all of us, it was Probably not good for the book, which of course is no one's priority and doesn't matter at all to anyone except me. But, you know, and it's hard because the book wound up getting incredible 
critical acclaim and was, you know, I was Good Morning America and in People Magazine and there was attention paid to it, but it's so hard to convince anybody to read a book about a pandemic. Understandably, we all have severe pandemic fatigue. And so I have to tell people, you know, there's, there's humor in the book and there's sweetness in the book and it focuses on these women's friendships and it, it's not all virus. And it, it's been hard for the poor book. I hope that people will read it anyway. I think people will. I think the, um, you know, the, the tide has to turn a little bit on it. You know, I read it more recently and I found it like really refreshing and, and like a weird way to talk about it. And maybe it was just the relationships with the characters and maybe some wishful times that we have had. But I do think that, you know, after going through it, it's kind of interesting to read a different story of it. And in some other weird way, this has been an experience that has united all of us. We kind of lived through it together. And yes, everybody's sick of COVID and ready for regular life. But pandemics have been a part of our history for a really long time. And it just happens that this one we've gone through, but it kind of normalizes the experience too, to read about another version of it. At least I found it was nice to live vicariously through the character. So if you're listening, you should get the book and you should read it because it really is. It's my favorite book that you've written. I mean, I love all your books, but it's my favorite one. Well, thank you. I mean, it is kind of a, what might have been, Yeah. you know, and I can tell you one thing that was incredibly satisfying about the book, both writing it and hopefully for people reading it, which is that pandemic in the book ends. It ends pretty <laughs> cleanly. <laughs> and you know, the other thing that, that's very satisfying about the book, and this is also maybe pretty humorous in retrospect, but everybody in the book, for the most part, there were some outliers, but everybody in the book pretty much was on the same page when it came to the societal and governmental and medical response to the virus. So that is one thing I did not anticipate about a pandemic was just the massive amount of misinformation and disinformation and politicization that would occur. That yeah. didn't happen as much in the book. And so it's kind of a sweeter read in that sense, mm -hmm. you know, people perceive the virus, which to I be fair is more yeah. deadly in the book. Um, they kind of all band together to fight it. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes in a weird way, that's good for humanity when you have a common enemy exactly. um, and the enemy is not us. <laughs> it's true. I think that as a physician, especially it's been really hard. I mean, the past two years have been hard for everybody, but having the general public lose trust in you, having so much misinformation, having the, I mean, we've always had patients Google stuff, which hasn't really bothered me, but now it's, they go down these rabbit holes and there are people, you know, spouting information that's truly harmful to them. And that has been one of the hardest things that battle against the misinformation or how political it has become, how off put some people can be when you try to talk about basic things like vaccines. And that's been a really difficult thing as a doctor through this. Um, I'm sure, you know, you as well, just because we're used to the science and, you know, this, oh, this is what we're taught and this is what we're going to do. And we anticipate people to expect that. And I'm probably very spoiled in my life as a fertility doctor because IVF is so specialized that I get such high acceptance when I say, here are the studies, here's what we're going to do. This is the thing I'm perceived as the IVF expert. And I very has like very rarely do I get somebody says, I'm not going to do that. So it's hard when you think of this general health being when I had patients just, you know, break down, not want to talk about it, not want to, you know, address it, just practicing. That was so hard. And I think that you're right. I think that's the core that the book struck just on an overall big picture is this wishful thinking, romanticizing this idea that like 
we didn't have to fight each other in addition to the virus, right? Like could have all worked together a little bit better. I mean, even though I still feel like hopefully um, we've made major strides with a bunch of it. How about, I want to switch gears now that COVID is I'm putting air quotes up ending since, you know, we are seeing restrictions lifted and people are traveling and my kids now go to school without a mask. They went this week for the first week ever. What about, what about the book? Are, are, are you going on some book tours? You've been going on some more. Are, is is going to press going to pick up or is not really, I don't understand the lifespan of a book and when do you get to go promote it and what that process is for you? Well, the lifespan of a book is pretty fleeting unless you're a bestseller because Every single Tuesday, the big publishing houses release their new titles. Oh my gosh. So it's like a YouTube video. You get yeah. one week. You get You get a short time to make <laughs> your case with booksellers and in bookstores and with readers. And so I did do a book tour for two or three weeks. Actually managed somehow to cleanly hit the window between Delta and Omicron. <laughs> so I got impressive. You're impressive. <laughs> and I'm still doing occasional um, book tour things. I did one last weekend and gosh, I want to come visit you in Texas. I still, we were going to do that before. COVID, I remember. We? Didn't we have a plan? Mm-hmm. But lo and behold, there was a pandemic plan got squashed. Well, we'll have to do it. We'll have to, we'll have to have some kind of fun Texas outing thing. Yeah. I'm still doing that. Um, and still, talking to readers on podcasts and on television interviews. And I write a lot on social media and all those things. So your career as an author is pretty ongoing when it comes to publicity. You really never quit. It's that other side of the job. Maybe you kind of know, but you don't realize, I presume, when you become a writer that a lot of your job is marketing yourself and your book and getting people to see it and be aware of it. I think a lot of people, you know, kind of glamorize the, I'm going to sit with my coffee and ride and have my own time. But really you've got to do a lot of the getting in front of people and, and doing press and doing events. I mean, that's another part of the job. Were you really well aware of that when you first started writing or was that side of things a surprise to you? What was your kind of experience? I was aware of it, but bad at it. And, you know, <laughs> Stop I it. I don't mental, believe that. No, seriously. I was a terrible speaker. You know, we all have this kind of mental image of a writer in a, you know, a tweed jacket with elbow patches yeah. and their cigar Super and sexy. their little, their little apartment in Paris or whatever. Right. Like, you know, And it, it is not like that. You're constantly selling yourself. As you just said, you're out there pitching your product, you're marketing yourself and, and social so, media and all these social things. Media, yeah. And you're, you know, that takes a lot of work. And there's much, much, much more public speaking than I realized when I started it. So now I've grown to love it because it has broadened my world to almost this, to encompass this global set of friends. And because of the power of the internet, you know, we can yeah. reach out to people all across the world and, and make friends. And so that's been the beautiful part about being a writer is it gives you this voice that's amplified a lot. And yeah, it's a hell of a lot of work, but it is pretty rewarding too. Um, On the other hand, sometimes I'm so sick of, you know, trying to make my social media pages nice and my (laughs) life seem appealing and, you know, my personality, not the, you know, hideous cranky hag that I am half the time, you know. It's kind (laughs) of life right now though, you know, no matter what, like you're having to sell in a way on social media. I mean, I'm kind of however I want to be on my personal account, but I mean, we've got a practice and it has a practice page and it's, you're trying to reach people and portray who you are and what you're about. And those posts live such a short little lifespan. It's just, you have to constantly do it over and over again. One thing that I have always loved about you 
and I've been seeing it even more is that you have been such an advocate to help other people learn or dive in to the world of writing, which I'm sure speaks to the testament of how much you love it. But I know there are Facebook groups like women physician writers, and you know, you've given talks and seminars, and you're always trying to help people get from the, I want to be a writer and I have no idea to the, like, let's get some words on paper and make action steps. What do you, which thank you. You're amazing at that. What do you though frequently hear, or what do you want to tell the person who's maybe in the early beginning stages of that journey? Do you have tips or advice for people who are just getting started? What, how do you usually get them to focus in? Is it focus on writing the book and figure the rest out later? Is it do two things consecutively? What's your best advice? Yeah. So I have several pieces of advice I generally give and I teach writing classes and do, um, there's not a day that goes by that I don't hear from somebody who wants to write a book, whether they're contacting me on social media or calling or whatever. First of all, I say, if you want to be a writer, you need to be a reader. So really just soak in the prose of writers whose work you admire. If, if it's catching your attention, be really conscious in analyzing why it is that you are hooked to that writer's words. What is it about the way that they are phrasing things or the material they're using? Or how can you identify what it is that's captured your attention? And you also sort of gain an intuitive understanding of storytelling. When you read a lot, you start to appreciate things like a narrative arc and the way plots unfold and how to maintain tension and all of the things that maybe you are unconsciously noticing, you start to more consciously notice. So my, that's my biggest advice for people who are aspiring writers is read and analyze. And then, yeah, a lot of it is just plain perseverance. Stick with it. Uh, if you are really enjoying it, it's probably worth doing. I love you so much. I love how easy you make it sound, but I know that it's not. Uh, and, I, and I know how gracious you are with your time, which I think is important for everybody to hear. Even, you know, I mean, we became connected because years ago I reached out to you and you were like, let's jump on a call. And I mean, people don't do that nowadays. Just get on a quick call with a relative internet stranger and give them, you know, 10 minutes of their time and advice. And I think that that is such an empowering thing you're doing for other people to try to help them, you know, live into this space and enter into this world that you're finding such joy in. And I know the community must mean so much to you. Let's talk about writing, like actually writing and getting it done. Because besides just let's cut out TV, which I agree, we've got to be more efficient what are your keys to productivity? Like what do you, what works for you? When are you, are you best early in the morning, late at night? Do you drink coffee or is it a glass of wine? Like what kind of sparks it for you to get the creative things flowing? Oh, for me, for sure. What sparks productivity is panic. Like I need a hard <laughs> deadline. <laughs> oh my God. It's I like med school all over again. Always. There's a test. <laughs> now I can yes, get the work done. Yes. Yes. Cause if there's no deadline, I'm just like, ah. You know, I will do it someday and then I won't. <laughs> yeah, I really need to feel that impending sense of doom that comes when you got a hard deadline hanging over your head. And maybe that's why I liked emergency medicine because there was always panic. <laughs> Constantly. You couldn't just walk around you know? like, la. <laughs> there was no, yeah, right. <laughs> so I struggle with productivity. I mean, how about you? I mean, I, I feel like it's very difficult for me to be organized. I have to work hard at that. I'm not a naturally meticulous person. I'm a chaos driven, you know, seat of your pants fool. 
Oh my gosh. I live on two extremes. Like if I, if I I'm organized and then when I lose it, it's like, I've lost it. Like there's chaos <laughs> everywhere. It's super messy. I have found that for me, like I have to get things done in the, in the morning before my regular day starts, which mm-hmm. means like getting up really early, but before my kids are up my, you know, after my after work time tends to get caught up with them. And then the evening, I feel like I'm, I'm not as, I've never been as creative in the afternoon and evening, but you know, I know a lot of people who that's like a really sparks time. They've kind of taken on their day and they feel very creative then. But for me, I'm like, that's the only time I knock things out is in the morning hour. So I always like, oh gosh, if, if we're meeting in the afternoon. So like, yeah, right now it's 3.30. I mean, you're getting like a medium version of me right now. The better me was this morning, but this is the <laughs> medium version. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. With, I'm cool with the mid you. That's <laughs> my kids would say, you're mid. Um, I don't know. I mean, I find that it's so much harder with, with kids. And I think everybody knows this too, but just like the balance and maybe, maybe part of it is I've gotten bad at it because when COVID happened and there were no activities and there wasn't getting them to school, I was able to be really productive in other ways. I captured these new pockets of time and I forgot how to micromanage baseball practice and cheerleading and the field trip and the school project. And suddenly those things overwhelm me like they didn't before. I don't know. I'm sure everybody kind of collectively feels like we've gotten to an extra level of busy as things have started to open back up. But I'm struggling more with being efficient and effective and as productive as I could be. I'm always looking for extra tips on that one. Well, sorry, I'm just there. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> advising you to let it go until panic sets in is probably not a good. <laughs> That's one me. That's one me. <laughs> we could we could play that way. Well, okay, so that's good. So if you're a deadline-driven panic person, Kemri is your girl, and you guys can relate to how things get done together. I yeah, love it. I guess I would add that um, what you can do is let go of some of the stress because, and this is something we may have talked about this before. I can't remember, but I always try to teach my kids to be resilient and ask them what's the worst thing that can happen if you fail at whatever it is you're trying to do. And usually the worst thing is not that bad. So really thinking through what will happen if you can't get everything done actually is sort of calming in a way you realize, yeah, something might go wrong, but it's not going to be lethal. Now in yes. my old lab as an emergency medicine doctor, I could not use that advice because the worst thing that could go wrong would be that I would kill someone. So that that was like why I had so much anxiety probably. But most of the time, I think letting go of the stress helps me a little bit. I think that's true. I've started to, you know, focus in on, you know, I'm a big list person. I try to list everything out and then I have a very unreasonable expectation of all the things I can get done. So that old like star the three things. And then, you know, it's like, I, so I now make like a weekly to-do list and I just put three little things on the daily one because otherwise I'm like, I'm not going to get to all 15 of these things. And then I'm going to end the day being like, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. But it is, it's hard. I think life, you know, being a working mom, no matter what is super busy. And I think when, I don't know, at some point it's kind of, you know, I can leave and show up at my job job and I don't have to be creative at work. So, so maybe it's even harder for you at times because you have to be, I know I have to be in the right mindset to be creative and have ideas. And so I can imagine balancing that in normal life is extra hard. Do you hide away? Like, do you write at home? Do you go away? Do you go on a writer retreat? Like when you're writing the book, where, where do you write it? I'm with you. I write more in the morning because I'm fried by the afternoon and I do have to have a giant chunk of time set aside. I can't write in 20 minute increments. It has to be a large, um, you know, solid block of time for me to really accomplish stuff. 
and I do hide from everyone. Man, yes, I would love to be on a writer retreat all the time. That <laughs> that sounds glamorous. You're like, love your kids, bye. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, right? But it takes like a 40-page scheduling manifesto to go out of town. And so <laughs> I rarely do it, but I want to. Oh my God. I, I mean, I hear you. I just went out of town. We have a we have Pinnacle Conference coming up in May. And so I went and met Rupa and Pam and we were in person. We haven't seen each other for two years trying to finalize out some of the details. But I mean, leaving, you're like coordinating 1 million different balls in the air. And anyways, it's tough to leave also. But yes, a writing retreat sounds really, really nice. Maybe you can host one and people can come to it and we can have a writer's retreat gathering. How? Why don't you do that? I totally love that idea. That's going to happen. I was like, that's a good idea. I just had a good idea for you. You should definitely do that one. I would love to know for you. So you've made, you know, if we look at your life, you know, ER physician, now you, I mean, you're essentially a full-time writer. Do you work any shifts in, were you in an urgent care for a while there? Or are you working at all as a physician or just writing right now? Um, I, I gradually kind of cut back. So I went from full-time in the ED to part-time. Then I picked up a job working in an allergy clinic where they wanted an ER doctor on site, someone anaphylaxed. And then I volunteered during COVID. So I'm not working in the ER at all right now, but I'm kind of keeping a toe in medicine. And I actually have a potential new project coming up. There's a new medical school opening in my city and I'm angling to get on the faculty to teach narrative medicine. So I'm taking on even more projects. I love this though. (laughs) So, So explain what that means to people who are listening. All right. So narrative medicine is a relatively new discipline within healthcare where you examine a work of literature, or it can be some other form of, you know, art, visual art or performance art or music or whatever. But you examine this work of literature in order to glean insight from it that you then apply to your patient experience and your interactions with your colleagues and your relationship with yourself during this, you know, difficult at times journey through healthcare. You know, we're, we're always burnt out and stressed, partly because we're you know, bound by constraints of time and confidentiality and sometimes anxiety about situations where we can't really talk about what happens at work. So you apply all this insight that you gain from analyzing literature into these relationships with your work colleagues and yourself and your patients. It's supposed to make you a more empathetic doctor and it's supposed to decrease your biases and it's supposed to challenge the assumptions that you hold as a healthcare provider that maybe aren't always right. So that's a long-winded explanation, but I think it's a brilliant addition to medicine and it's become pretty prevalent in medical training, at least compared to when I trained. Yeah. So hold on. I'm thinking one, this sounds amazing Two, this was not medical school when I went through medical school. And so how did this, did they reach out to you? Did you contact them? You know, how are you starting to kind of leverage this opportunity? Well, I am approached to give talks at conferences and medical schools or nursing schools or two groups of PAs or whatever. And so I kind of got interested in it after I heard about it from somebody on one of these conferences. And then when the new medical school started gaining traction here, I went to the administration and said, Hey, if you have somebody teaching this, I would, I would love to be considered for the position because I'm really into literature. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Look at me. Yeah. You are the perfect person. And how inspiring that would be. And I think it's a, that's a fabulous idea. Medicine is so isolating and our experiences actually can be so unique, right? It's just, it really depends on what, what you do. And it can be so hard 
to know what's normal or what feelings are normal. And I agree with you. I think that's why so many people are burnt out, especially well, I mean, especially female physicians, you know, when they're balancing all these balls that we're talking about, we see such higher burnout rates more now than ever. And I think that being able to connect with others and understand, you know, have a joint shared experience is always something that makes you feel less isolated. So this is amazing. And I can't wait to see what you do with it because of course you're going to do completely amazing things. So that's going to add to your list of busyness class teaching professor. Yeah. I think I'm like you, you know, I can't just rest. I know, right? I, <laughs> I gotta be doing like, something challenging. Gosh, I'm always like, Oh, what if I just didn't do these things? You know? And I also, my husband, I'm like, what if I didn't do all this stuff? And I just did my job and we just hung out. He's like, there's a 0% chance that would be our life. Like that is not you. You would do other things in this other time because that's the kind of person you are. You're always trying to seek out these other things. And I know you're that same way too. So I'm always, you know, glamorizing, Oh, what, if, what if I didn't do all this? And Jason's like, yeah, come on now. Let's be realistic for a moment. Yeah. I mean, I like sitting on a beach as much as the next person, well, but, yes, but... but you know, there's just something about a challenge and about keeping your mind occupied, not even occupied, but striving for something new that really motivates me. I love it. So I have a question. In a future book, do you have an idea for your next book or do you have that in progress or is that still a blank slate at the moment? Yeah, I'm about halfway through with another book and then I've got an idea for the book beyond that one too. Of course so, you are. Look at you. I, well, yeah, we'll see if it happens. But so for one of them, I want it to be kind of a follow-up to Doctors and Friends with one of the characters who was not a point of view character to be the main protagonist. Um, so I probably Bonnie. I love how yeah. you do this. They're like spinoffs, my books. Yeah. They're not really sequels, but they're kind of set in the same fictional universe. So that book will be about Bonnie, who's an internal medicine doctor in a small town in Kentucky. And gosh, I don't know where I got that idea from because I grew up in a small town in Kentucky. Mm. So there'll be a book about her. Right now I'm working on kind of a departure from my other three novels. This one's a little bit different. It has um, both a male and a female protagonist and they're married to one another. And one of them is hiding this big secret from the other one. Um, and it's a little bit in the world of medicine in that the woman is an orthopedic surgeon, but it's also a little bit set in the biotechnology world and in the world of finance. So those are two things I'm learning a lot about right now. Oh, look at you. I love that. So you're kind of bridging real life worlds that interact with our specter a lot, especially biotech and, you know, bridging that gap. So do you think you will always have a female physician in your books? Well, it's actually, it was in my contract with Penguin Random House that I had to. Oh, look um, at that. One, <laughs> so yes, um, for that contract, yes. For that contract, yes. But I can always, you know, look outside that and write something else. And I, I do want to write from a male perspective in this next book. I think it's, I think it's kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be a fun exploration project more, right? To think through the male psyche and how they approach things. Just yeah. not caring about it. Anyways, that's going to, I can't wait to read that from your perspective of a man. Yeah, I'm going to have to get some dudes <laughs> to pre-read it for me, but <laughs> can't wait to see that one. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if you ever branch away. I mean, I love that you have physicians and the world of medicine in your books. And I, I mean, I don't know, I'm biased. I'm like, oh, you should always have a touch of that. But I can also see the appeal to sometime maybe having a different thing that's not always in the world of medicine, but it is. Yeah, I would like to write some nonfiction too. And I would like for you to write a book. 
I coming Lord, <laughs> with all your Lord. free time. Okay. So we'll, we'll end on this. So, you know, I have been on this journey with wanting to write a nonfiction fertility book for God knows how long and made a little bit of progress with it, with the proposal. I had the proposal, had an agent, all this stuff pre pandemic and then COVID happened. And of course that's not a good time to go sell a book. And then since then, nobody's been interested in it. And everybody says that a fertility book won't sell and that the world of publishing is really different right now that people, at least for nonfiction, they just, they want things online or audio and that I should not spend my time in the book world, which I don't fully believe, but to me, like you, you get rejected a lot. You're like, okay, maybe there's something about my idea that I need to fine tune that it's just not like perfected out there, but I still believe the world wants a fertility book. I mean, I, I don't know. I just feel like if you look at all, all the other things that I create that are, you know, really boring stuff, like about your period and what it means when you get older and the things people wish they had known about how diet and environment impact their fertility that nobody ever taught us. People are super interested in those things. So surely they'd love to read them in a book form, but I am still at the phase of trying to get convince other people that that is a worthwhile endeavor to bet on. It's well, we'll wild have to discuss that offline. I have <laughs> thoughts. You're like, I have thoughts. I have, thoughts. I have thoughts about that. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah. so it's, it's been interesting. I mean, definitely, you know, like you said, I feel like the, for, I mean, not for everybody. I mean, I have some friends who have books and somebody approached them and they wrote a book and they have a book out there, but I do think that there is a lot of rejection sometimes that comes in this world that I am so bad at rejection. I mean, I just really bad. Like I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to fail at that. So I'm just going to stop it. So it has to go a little bit against nature. I'm sure almost every physician is like this to say, oh, okay, I'm just going to keep on doing it. I'm just going to keep on keeping on regardless of what those people say and believing that it'll find a home at some point. I think it will. And I think there is an appetite out there. I mean, look at how many people look to you for advice on this issue. I think it'll happen. I love you. Thank you for your vote of confidence, Kimberly. That means so much. I would love if you would tell everybody, you know, where they can find you so they can go support you on social media, because I do know that some of those metrics matter to people. And that's a great way that you can show support. So where can we find you and follow you? Uh, well, I'm Kimmery Martin on Instagram, which I think is where you and I met. And yes. I like Instagram. I'm Kimmery Martin on Facebook. And my website is KimmeryMartin.com. So I'm pretty easy to find. K-I-M-M-E-R-Y. Okay. Well, thank you so much for spending your time. And I hope everybody who's listening goes out and buys doctors and friends. And maybe we can, maybe we can have a book club about it. So if you're listening, maybe we can all do a little live and chat about it after you read it. That would be super fun. But thank you so much, Kimmery. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you guys all so much for listening. I hope you adore Kimmery just as much as I do. And if you're a reader, go check out her latest book, Doctors and Friends. Thanks for all that you do and all your support of me. You can always check out the Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD or the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brian Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join The Collective.